hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Are we less than the dust of the earth? Or are we great and priceless, of great and priceless worth as human beings? Are we gnats or are we lions? Well, I suppose my considered answer to you, and I hope yours is the same, is both. It all depends on our perspective and our attitude. Please consider this story from a long time ago. One summer morning years ago, I woke up very slowly. This was not normal now, but it was normal then. The morning sun was streaming through the window. As I opened my eyes slowly, there was a gnat, you know, a bug, only a fraction of an inch from my face. He was so close to the end of my nose, but still so small, I could barely see him. He was there for only a fraction of a second, and then he was gone. Now, probably most people wouldn't even think about or are thinking about anything at that time of the morning, but for some reason, my brain locked with that gnat. And I started thinking about him. And it didn't take long before I realized, that's me. That's my thought. That's how I feel, just like that gnat. So insignificant. I'm nothing. In the span of the Earth's history, I'm here one minute, and then I'm gone forever the next and forgotten. And that's when I began to reflect. What will I leave behind that someone will know that I was ever here or care. Now, forgive me, this is me personally, and this is a long time ago. Will this world even know or care that Glenn Rawson ever existed? Well, those were my thoughts. All day long, I thought about that gnat, and it hammered on my mind. I don't want to live and die a gnat. Now, I believe I'm not the only child of the Almighty who feels this way. For example, Moses had been a prince of Egypt, mighty in power in the court of Pharaoh. He gave it up. He fled into the wilderness of Sinai and became a shepherd. And then one day, the Lord called Moses up into the mountain, and while the glory of God was upon him, Moses spoke with God face to face. I have a work for thee, Moses, my son, the father said, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. He then showed Moses great visions, which caused him to marvel and to wonder such things as he had never imagined Moses saw. When the Lord withdrew from Moses, he fell to the earth and for many hours had not enough strength to even stand. In this exhausted state, Moses reflected to himself, Now for this cause, he said, I know that man is nothing. 
which thing I never had supposed. Moses chapter 1, verse 10. There's the burning question, my friends. Is man, you, nothing, or are you a child of God a little lower than the angels? Are you less than the dust of the earth or more precious than fine gold? Which is it? And the answer is, of course, both. Now watch the prepositions. To God, we are his children of infinite worth and precious in his sight and worth the life, the blood, and the existence of his only begotten son. That's how much we're worth. To God. But before God and his power and might, majesty, glory, and dominion, we are nothing. We are gnats in comparison to him. In our fallen state, King Benjamin said, we are worthless before him. All of us, indeed, as fallen mortals, are gnats until we recognize that fallen mortal condition and our everlasting dependence upon the Almighty. When Moses the shepherd came to that knowledge, he became Moses the great deliverer and lawgiver. What will happen with us when we wake up to humility as did Moses and know where we stand before the Almighty and who we really are, all theatrics aside? I paraphrase the words of Neil A. Maxwell. When we come to know who we are before God, we do not stand, we kneel. Next story. So, if mortality is all that there is to our existence, then indeed, life is grossly unfair, and we should scramble like everyone else, to get as much as we can, no matter the cost. If life is all there is, if this is it and then the lights go out, well, then it's every man for himself. Further, if God cannot or will not make all things right and fair and just, well, then he certainly doesn't have all power and his love is lacking. But our Father in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, they are just. They are fair. They believe in justice for all men, and they are all-powerful and all-loving. Let that work in your mind. We're going to see great adjustments in the way things are done when we step, through, step beyond the veil. For example, there are those of you who are seeking miracles and wanting justice who have not received them. Why? I don't know. I'm not sure any mortal knows why you have been treated unfairly. But this much you and I both know. Patience and faith are so important in our eternal development as virtues that God is willing to let his children destroy themselves for the lack of both. Consider this story, please. What is compassion? Well, according to the dictionary, compassion is a combined emotion of love and pity. This story is about the compassion of Christ and when and where it is manifest. 
One day, the Savior was approaching a beautiful mountain village called Nain. The word Nain means, in the Hebrew, fair. I know where the city of Nain is. I've been close to it. A large crowd accompanied the master, including many of his disciples. As they neared the village of Nain, they came upon a funeral procession. Many of the people filed in mourning with the grieving mother. The man being buried was her only son, and she, tragically, was a widow. Jesus saw her and perceived the situation immediately. As always, concerned with the plight of the widow, the Savior was filled with tender compassion for her, and he said, Weep not. He turned from her and touched the bier that bare her son's body. Luke 7, 14. Those who carried him stopped when he did this. Jesus then shocked them when he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. Luke then records these meaningful words. And Jesus delivered him to his mother. Can you imagine? What a gift. What a gift of joy. What a miracle. What a tender mercy he gave that dear woman. A worshipful reverence came upon the people who witnessed, and they glorified God and proclaimed that, quote, God hath visited his people. Now, please, step back from that story for just a moment. Why did Jesus do this miracle? Did the Savior perform such miracles every time there was a widow bereft? No, he didn't. Did he heal every sick person? No. Did he raise every soul deceased from the dead? No. So why was the lost son returned to the widow? Simply because it says in the record, the Savior had compassion on her. He felt sorry for her. And giving her back her son was the greatest eternal good at that moment or he wouldn't have done it. We do not know all the reasons why this story ended so happily when so many others, perhaps even in your life, have not. In this life, we probably will never know. We're to act on faith. But know this, and this is true. God doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. He always does the greatest good for you, for the world, for all of us. He is always right. He is always just, whether we like it or not. Some of us don't get the miracles we want. I know there are miracles I prayed my whole life, and they've never come. In fact, at least in a couple of cases, they will not come in this life. Does that mean he cares less about me, about you? No. His love and his compassion for us are perfect and ever-present. The time will come 
when you and I will all see the salvation of the Lord and confess before him that his ways are just. But for now, thanks be to God, he knows what he's doing. Next story. I wonder if God and the angels celebrate some of our national holidays, like Halloween. I wonder if heaven takes note of Valentine's Day. Or how about this, National Redhead Day. Oh, surely that's a red-letter day in heaven. Now, somehow, I, I just don't think so. But there are dates that heaven marks and remembers while mortals pay no attention. And in that regard, I believe this is one of heaven's holidays, at least for this earth. Someday in the future, when we are beyond this life and we can look back on this mortality from the vantage point of eternity, when we're able to see all of our history as God sees it, there will be certain events and dates of greater significance than the world ever knew. There will be moments like that of the resurrection of Christ, largely unnoticed at the time, that will have done the most good for the most people for the longest time. And among those dates will be this one, March the 26th, 1830, a day in history that marked so much good for so many people for so long a time. What is that date? Do you know? That date signaled the beginning of the marvelous work and a wonder that would sweep the entire earth and affect every nation, every people, indeed every family. God himself marked that moment as a sign to all the world that a great work would commence among all people where he would gather out from all the nations of the earth the scattered and lost members of the house of Israel and restore them to the respective lands of inheritance. That moment was also a stern warning to all the world. Quote, When ye shall see these sayings come forth among you, then ye need not any longer spurn at the doings of the Lord. For the sword of his justice is in his right hand. And behold, at that day, if ye shall spurn at his doings, he will cause that it shall soon overtake you. 3 Nephi 29.4. So what was this event that God marked as a sign of a great change coming? What happened on March 26, 1830? <laughs> I know you're already ahead of me. It was on that date in a small two-story brick building in Palmyra, New York, that the first copies of the Book of Mormon went on sale. The Book of Mormon contains the full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, said President Nelson recently. A marvelous work and a wonder, a witness and a warning. Next story. I've been reminded again and again not to get too fixed in my opinions. This is the way it is, the more somebody steps up and says, no, nah, it's not. 
There have been times when I was so certain that I knew exactly how things were, only to find out later that there was more to the story that I didn't know. Well, so it is, my friends, with our history as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Though we have the most complete record of any major church on earth, there are still holes in our historical record. For example, Mormon did not even tell us a hundredth part of what he could say. <laughs> Study of history is a little bit like predicting weather. Very imprecise. As a historian, we can only look at the existing record and from that draw our conclusions of what happened. We're only as good as our sources. Every credible historian that I know will be the first one to say, but I could be wrong. So it is with this next story and all the connections to it. I was asked to present this story, so it comes not by way of inspiration, but it, it comes by way of, well, a song requested on the radio, as it were. June 17th, 1877. This is about three months before President Brigham Young passed away. He related the following at a conference. He said, quote, I believe I will take the liberty to tell you of another circumstance that will be as marvelous as anything can be. This is an incident in the life of Oliver Cowdery, but he did not take the liberty of telling such things in meeting as I take. I tell these things to you, and I have a motive for doing so. I want to carry them to the ears of my brethren and sisters, and to the children also, that they may grow to an understanding of some things that seem to be entirely hidden from the human family. Oliver Cowdery went with the prophet Joseph when he deposited these plates, meaning the gold plates. Joseph did not translate all the plates. There was a portion of them sealed, which you can learn from the book of Doctrine and Covenants. When Joseph got the plates, the angel instructed him to carry them back to the hill Cumorah, which he did. Oliver says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, the hill opened and they walked into a cave in which there was a large and spacious room. He says he did not think at that time whether they had the light of the sun or artificial light, but that it was just as light as day. They laid the plates on a table. It was a large table that stood in the room. Under this table, there was a pile of plates as much as two feet high. And there were altogether in this room more plates than probably many wagon loads. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went there, sort of Laban hung up on the wall. But when they went again, it had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed, and on it was written these words, quote, This sword will never be sheathed again, until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ, end quote. Now, that's the end of President Young's statement. Now, that has caused all kinds of people to draw all kinds of conclusions. We know from the Book of Mormon that it says, once the plates were translated, that they were to be hid up, that's the word, hid up again in the earth. That same language is used to describe 
how Joseph got the plates the first time, that Moroni hid them up, Joseph received them, translated, and then hid them up again. Where are the plates then? Here upon the earth. According to President Young, where? In the hill Cumorah, inside of a cave. Okay. Just consider this. And I've got to be so careful what I say here because I don't want to stir up a can of worms. But where is that hill? The hill in New York is a drumlin. It's a gravel pile. It was created by a glacier. The likelihood of a full-blown cave inside of a gravel pile, well, that's caused some people to say, how can that be? And other accounts of this same experience left behind are all secondhand accounts describing the story of a cave in the hill Camorra. Joseph never recorded the incident. So, where are the plates? Okay, this is the point. I haven't the foggiest idea. They're in the hill Camorra. Was Brigham Young describing an actual walk into a cave, or was he describing a vision or a transport experience like Nephi had? I don't know. I don't know that anyone knows. It hasn't been revealed. Therefore, I share this story with you as a reminder to all of us. Be careful the conclusions that you draw from the historical evidence. There is so much that we don't know. And what is unfortunate is to watch people fight, argue, accuse, and moreover, get all bent out of shape because someone doesn't agree with their Book of Mormon or their historical interpretation. As I've told you before on several occasions, I have been attacked many times because of the things I've taught in these devotionals. The attacks that come from without don't bother me much anymore, but the attacks that come from within break my heart. To have members of the church who go after me <laughs> because my historical interpretation of a story or of an event or even of the Book of Mormon doesn't square with theirs, and these faithful church members blast me. That's disheartening. So to you and to me, let's be careful how dogmatic we get with stories of history and our own interpretation based on historical fact. There's a lot we don't know. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.